0: Manufacturing descent since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, while I take a sip of water, tell me, how was your Labor Day weekend?
1: I went to Plainfield, Illinois, and saw the uh, canine police memorial statue there. I mean, that wasn't the reason I went to Plainfield, Illinois, but I gotta say, there's a uh, Blue Lives Matter variant flag flying above it. And it's uh, the typical black and white blue lives matter flag, but instead of a blue line in the middle, uh, there was it was half one of the stripes was half orange and half purple. <laughs> Which, this is getting like more confusing and less fun than the hankey code.
0: <laughs> so, uh, is Plainfield appropriately named? Yeah, I mean, if uh,
1: <laughs> that's the best you can do with your name for your place, that was nice. Uh, when canoeing.
0: Oh, really? So it wasn't like family stuff? You weren't going out there to visit family, you were actually going out there for an activity. I took my damn family with me. Oh, cool. Very cool. Enjoy yourself. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Uh, Let's see. Oh, in early March we were told that it would be uh, 12 to 18 months until we had a vaccine, which meant that at worst, we would be affected by the pandemic until Labor Day 2021. So I celebrated that one year until whatever with three words, Alex. Weed-infused Parmesan. Weed-infused Parmesan. You, you smoke that? <laughs> no. A little olive oil, a little toast, maybe on a little extra on your macaroni and cheese, you know, that kind of thing. And it was delicious and very effective. More importantly, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners?
1: Hmm? Hmm? Sorry to get the music going. This week's question from hell is uh, apologies to international listeners here but uh what are you telling yourself as you vote for joe biden what are you telling yourself as
0: you vote for joe biden bonus points anyone who's not voting for joe biden (laughs) what are you telling yourself when you vote for joe biden Uh, The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail Wins our new gray and black This is hell truckers cap You can check out the new gray and black This is hell truckers cap And all our merch right now By going to thisishell.com And clicking on support Where you can see all the ways You can contribute to Completely listener supported This is hell without you we got nothing, so thank you for your support. To leave your response to this week's question mail all you have to do is email myself or Alex, Chuck at ThisIsHell.com, Alex at ThisIsHell.com. Tweet it to us at radio, or leave your comment at our Facebook post, Facebook.com slash radio. Alex will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest, speaking of which, on today's show, armed right-wing protesters defining freedom as the right to be free from the government is the opposite of how the Founding Fathers, the far-right supposedly embraces, understood freedom. In fact, if the framers of the Constitution, if the Revolutionary War type rea- types that reactionaries love to play dress-up and pretend to be were alive today, they would be disgusted by the anti-democratic values of so-called patriots who've been duped into supporting the counter-revolutionary blowback directed in Demanded by the elites whose power was finally being challenged by the people through the revolution Yep, the far-right supposedly fighting for the freedom of their founding fathers Are actually fighting against the very freedom those founding fathers actually wanted And that was the freedom to govern themselves For the people to govern, not just a few wealthy and powerful elites In a few minutes, we'll find out how freedom has mutated into an anti-democratic project When we talk to political historian Anneline DeGin who is author of Freedom and Unruly History. Annalene is professor of modern political history at Utrecht University, where she teaches... Political and Intellectual History She is also the author of French Political Thought From Montesquieu to de Tocqueville You can find out more about Annaline At annalinedegin.yolasite.com Follow Annaline on Twitter At DE underscore D-I-J-N Brave enough to be streaming live Dumb enough to be goofy Stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover This is hell And Alex has this week's hangover cure
1: This week's hangover cure is... Curing hang in the new hangover cure, a new hangover, many are experiencing a reaction to the global coronavirus pandemic. According to an article at today.com by (laughs) Vivian Manning Shaffle. the weird times we're living in have caused some of us to lean on the bottle a little more than we normally would. If you're occasionally having one too many, you know that ominous feeling, your heart rate rising, the mental fog clearing as you start to remember things you said and did, and then an overwhelming sense of shame and fear. What you're experiencing might be anxiety. It's what happens when a hangover and anxiety join forces to make your life miserable. That su- sounds just like a hangover. That yeah, sounds like <laughs> why we drink in the first place. Later in the story, and using very technical terms, Dr. Timothy Fong, a clinical professor of psychiatry and the director of the UCLA Addiction Psychiatry Fellowship, is quoted saying anxiety is definitely a thing. <laughs> it's not really formally studied, but it's enough of a thing where you know people talk about it.
0: Wow, Dr. Fong. Doctor, Do not want to see Dr. Like Fong. A drink
1: with Dr. Fong. <laughs> Dr. Fong just suggests drinking three glasses of water, having a light meal, taking a long shower, clearing your schedule, yeah, good luck with that, <laughs> and taking stock of your drinking habits. <laughs> that makes this week's Hangover Cure, a cure for pandemic-related overdrinking caused anxiety. Water, light meal, shower, do nothing, and reconsider your alcohol fueled response to COVID 19.
0: It sounds like a regular hangover and just like the way that you deal with a hangover. Anxiety sounds totally made up. And if you didn't notice, that was from today.com. Yes, that was from the Today Show. The Today Show is now making up new words for hangovers and then coming up with absolutely no cure. For said hangover, this is not the media. This is hell. All weekend long, I couldn't get something out of my head that was said by a guest on last week's show. The former FBI agent Mike German, who spent years undercover inside the most dangerous terrorist threat to the United States, and that would be white supremacists. Mike just produced a report for the Brennan Center called Hidden in Plain Sight about white supremacists and how they have infiltrated nearly every part of law enforcement, not only your local police force. And no, Mike's report was not picked up by the U.S. mainstream TV, news media, or any media that I could see here in the U.S., which is still very much in deep denial about not only our current white supremacy, but the white supremacist past of the United States that dates back to... It's very beginning. Hell, even before the beginning, when the founding documents were still being debated by a whole bunch of racist slaveholders. And as long as the media and the public refuse to acknowledge that history, in an attempt to right the institutional wrongs of this failed experiment in democracy, white supremacy and white supremacists will be very much part of the United States. It's kind of hard to challenge white supremacy when you refuse to acknowledge its very existence. Former FBI agent Mike German argues that white supremacists have a better understanding of U.S. history Because they recognize the nation was founded on white supremacy by white supremacists Something liberals and conservatives from both sides of the aisle refuse to acknowledge or admit The problem is white supremacists embrace that history of white supremacy And damn it, they're going to make America great again by bringing back that entire doctrine of racist, sexist, inequality Slavery, the three-fifths compromise, the end of women's right to vote Get ready because when they make America great again There will be more than whites-only lunch counters There will be whites-only everything Meanwhile, seemingly everyone who is not a white supremacist Denies the white supremacist past of the United States And if they are refusing to believe that past existed Then exactly how much do you think they believe the United States has a white supremacist present Or a white supremacist law enforcement for that matter? They don't believe it, even when their own FBI is telling them that there are white supremacist cops, and a lot of them, they still will not believe it. Even after the FBI tells them that white supremacists are the number one terrorist threat to the United States, even our elected officials won't believe it, and our media won't tell us about it. So, the media, in deep denial about our past and its impact on our present, is complicit, if not actively participating, in a cover-up of the rise of white supremacy and the power that it has attained with injustice, one of the three branches of government, and who knows how much white supremacy has infected the other two branches. Well, we don't, because even if they knew, the U.S. media wouldn't share that information with us, and our government probably wouldn't tell us either. This is... Active denial of white supremacy's role in U.S. history and what it means for us today actually encourages white supremacy, which has metastasized and is spreading to all parts of the body politic, invading like a cancer, rotting us from the inside out. You want to end white supremacy and its continued rise to power? Then admit that the United States' founding documents were written by sexist, racist slaveholders who are willing to compromise with slavery to the extent of not only allowing slavery, but counting slaves as three-fifths of a human being, of a person, in order to give the South more political power through the racist institution that is the Electoral College. It is is possible, very possible, that being opposed to racism is a dead end politically when it comes to organizing. That addressing class inequality may be a more concrete way to address institutional racial inequalities, especially those instituted through the economy. But, Raising awareness of that history of racism and admitting to that legacy of white supremacy, doing everything to root it out instead of embracing the ideas of American innocence and exceptionalism, could be a direct challenge to white supremacists who want nothing more than a return to a Confederate past. You know why the Confederate flag is so offensive? It's because the Confederacy still exists. White supremacy still exists in the hearts of tens of millions of of people in the United States and hopefully it's not more than that but probably is statues to confederate leaders are offensive because they are purposeful early 20th century reminders often funded by what was then a resurgent, rejuvenated Ku Klux Klan, reminders of the institutional racism that is, was still keeping black citizens down with unfulfilled promises of democracy, freedom, liberty, and inequality, and still does, and institutional racism that loyal, patriotic Americans would never confess to actually ever occurring, instead believing the country and its citizenry has always been innocent of any sin and exceptional to the extreme. So all I could think about all weekend was how an ex-FBI agent who went undercover into white supremacist organizations told us last week that white supremacists have a better understanding of the white supremacist past of the U.S. than most Americans who deny that past. The problem is white supremacists embrace that past, and as long as everyone else is denying the past, their love for and faith in white supremacy will continue to fester And grow Until we acknowledge our white supremacist past We cannot acknowledge our white supremacist present Or future And as long as we actively refuse to recognize that white supremacy And how it was built into the foundation of the United States Believing we are always and have always been exceptional and innocent The threat of fascism will grow And it will be even easier for me to argue On this show every day That this is Hell, coming up, freedom ain't what it used to be. In fact, freedom has become the opposite of what it once was. We will also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests live from late capitalism where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is Hell. The far right understands freedom As the ability to not have any Government in our lives whatsoever Here in the states the right has Interpreted U.S. history to reinforce Their belief that any government is the enemy Of freedom. Problem is the founding Fathers they claim to emulate did not Understand freedom as being free From government. Instead the framers Viewed freedom as being free To govern themselves democratically Which is a lot different, nearly the Opposite of what the so-called patriots are Screaming about freedom from Face masks to everything else. Here to explain political historian Annalene DeGin is author of Freedom and Unruly History. Annalene is professor of modern political history at Utrecht University, where she teaches political and intellectual history. You can find out more about Annalene at AnnaleneDeGin.Yolasite.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at DE underscore DIJN. Welcome to This Is Hell, Annalene.
2: Hi, great to be here.
0: This is a fascinating topic, a really interesting take on what is meant by freedom. And I'm so glad that we're talking to you about this because... A couple weeks ago, we spoke with author, photographer, anthropologist, former uh, explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society, Wade Davis. And Wade argues that here in the U.S., he lives in Canada, was born in the United States and lives in Canada now. He says that here in the U.S., we have lost our sense of what freedom is. He writes that in the U.S., those who flock to beaches, bars and political rallies, putting their fellow citizens at risk, are not exercising freedom. They are displaying the weakness of a people who lack both the stoicism to endure the pandemic and the fortitude to defeat it, not exercising any sense of freedom. What does it reveal to you about how freedom is understood when it is seen as the ability to not wear a face mask or practice any safety protocols during a global pandemic?
2: Well, I think what's behind that particular um, complaint that face masks, for instance, are an infringement of our liberty is a very peculiar uh, conception of liberty. And that conception of liberty Uh, is that any kind of state intervention will automatically um, harm uh, your liberty. And what I try to show in my book is that that peculiar conception of freedom, freedom as the absence of state intervention, is actually far more uh, recent than you think at first sight. So that's one claim. And the second claim is also that it was invented by uh, a very different set of people from the ones that we usually attribute this view to.
0: And Wade also writes that in the U.S., personal freedom came at the expense of common purpose. Is freedom something experienced individually or collectively? Are individual and collective freedom in competition with one another?
2: Well, what I what I try to show in my book is that there's a long history to uh, current conceptions of freedom, um, and I, I sketch or I reconstruct something. Um, that we usually describe as the Western tradition of thinking about freedom. Uh, and in a way you could argue that that tradition uh, starts uh, with the ancient Greeks. Uh, and what I tried to show in my book is that um, originally when we talked about freedom in the West, what we meant by that was the ability to self govern. Um, so what I tried to show in my book is that freedom originally was a near synonym for democracy. Um, and that, changes um, fairly late in the day. So that only starts to change in the course of the 19th century. It's only in the course of the 19th century that we start thinking about freedom, not as this collective ability to govern ourselves, uh, but as being left alone by the state, as being able to do what we want without any kind of um, state interference. Now, when, you, uh, when, when we reflect on how that change happens, so this change from a, a collective conception of freedom to this more individualistic conception of freedom, there's sort of a, a set of uh, standard narratives to explain how that shift happens. Uh, and one of those narratives is that this more recent individualistic conception of freedom uh, is a result of, of uh, long-term changes, cultural changes, such for instance, the Reformation. Uh, so one fairly common argument is that uh, when the Reformation happened um, uh, uh, people became to prize uh, things like um, freedom of conscience and that, that led to this a uh, different way of thinking about freedom this more sort of inner individualistic uh, way of thinking about freedom but what I try to show in my book is that those sort of those common narratives about the history of freedom are in fact wrong um, and that that more recent, that more modern individualistic conception of freedom was in fact an invention uh, of conservative uh, counter-revolutionary uh, thinkers who objected to the uh, increasing success of de- dem- democratizing movements um, in both Europe and the United States.
0: Can we have a free society without being free from government? That's the argument that the right make- makes, that we don't need a government to be a free society. In fact, that a government makes it so we are not a free society. Can we have a free society without being free from government?
2: Well, so uh, what I try to show in my book is that... um, uh, that for centuries um, that was not an argument that people um, accepted for centuries when people thought about being free it didn't mean not having a government what it meant was having control over the way in which you were governed so laws weren't necessarily seen as an infringement of our liberty uh, what was important was the question who's making those laws and as long as you know it could be plausibly argued, um, that the, you know, that the laws you were subjected to were, were collectively made, that they were made, that they were subjected to democratic control, then um, you were able to say that you were living a free life. Uh, so this argument that um, government in and of itself uh, uh, is a, a threat to liberty, and that it, it doesn't matter who's governing, but that what matters is the extent to which you are governed, that's actually a fairly a recent invention, and I would also say uh, a, a, a right-wing invention. So, uh, one of the um, one of the ways of describing what i try to do in my book is to describe is to explain how freedom from an emancipatory concept a concept that was most commonly invoked to argue for the extension of democratic control over government how that was transformed into a conservative argument uh, to argue for a minimal government um, uh, and to argue that uh, any kind of government interference, even um, um, uh, you know laws made with with democratic consent, should be seen as an infringement of our liberty. And the reason why that um, that individualistic conception of liberty was so attractive um, to these conservatives was that it allowed them to weaponize the concept of freedom um, against democracy. Because if you're saying that um, any kind of um gov- any kind of um, uh, law any kind of sort of governmental interference and infringement of our liberty even when it's um, when it when it has you know considerable uh, democratic legitimacy then it allows you to um, to use this you know to say that um, specific types of state intervention that those are um, you know they're harming you they're infringing your individual liberty like you see for instance in the current discussions about face masks and the like
0: You were just mentioning that this is a right-wing concept, but also in your book you point out that this idea of individual freedom has been embraced by liberals as well, by people here in the United States on both sides of the aisle, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. How did liberals come about to the point of accepting this idea of individual freedom? Because that would seem to go against their more uh, collective sense of freedom pre-1945 with, for instance, the administration of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt
2: exactly that's a great question so um, my book uh, in essence tells two stories about freedom one story is how uh, conservatives invented this uh, individualistic what I call modern conception of liberty and how they weaponize it against democracy but what I also try to show in my book is that um, at least initially in the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries the concept of freedom also continued to be invoked by uh, different uh, groups on the other side of the political spectrum. So, progressives, populists, socialists continue to enthusiastically invoke the idea of freedom, um, by which they meant something very different from these conservatives. They they continue to place themselves in that more democratic, revolutionary tradition uh, by arguing that you know real freedom wasn't just being left alone by the state, but that it implied uh, establishing Control both over political decision making, but also um, uh, over economic uh, decision making and, and over our economic lives. So then, uh, another question my book tries to answer is how did or and why um, did people on the left stop using the concept of freedom um, in this more democratic sense? Uh, and I think in order to answer that question, we need to look at the the, the context of the Cold War. So. What I try to show is that after uh, 1945, um, even um, people that we usually describe of as, as liberal thinkers, so more progressive thinkers, thinkers that embrace state intervention and that um, can see that uh, state intervention can be important to procure economic security for ordinary people, that they start arguing, um, that they start buying into this um, uh, more individualistic conservative conception of liberty. Um, and um that 's how we end up with the situation that we are now at, uh, where freedom has become um, in a way uh, an ideal that is embraced mostly by conservatives uh, and um, uh, far far less so by people um, on the liberal end of the political spectrum
0: so why wasn 't part of the so called peace dividend by Uh, The end of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Soviet Union, why wasn't part of that so-called peace dividend, the left reverting to their more collective sense of freedom instead of sticking with this more individualized idea of freedom?
2: That's a really great question. Um, In essence, your question is, why do we keep, you know, why do we keep being boxed in by the ideologies that we inherited from that Cold War period? And to be honest with you, that's a question I don't really have an, an answer to. Um, so it, it is very striking when we look at the way in which people think and talk about politics today that the vocabulary that was invented uh, during the Cold War remains very much uh, vibrant. Um, um, you can see that uh, quite clearly in debates about socialism today in the U.S. It's as if um, you know those continue to replay those. Earlier debates from the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, uh, but why it has become so difficult for us to sort of break out of that, um, 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 you know, that, that ideological, you know, box that we're in, I, I find that a really puzzling, uh, a really puzzling question.
0: Uh, one of the things that I believe the right embraces is this idea that only the state can limit freedom. Who or what else has the power to limit freedom other than the state that the right might be not just the right, but even liberals, people who embrace this idea of individual freedom might be overlooking?
2: Well, um, I I think a sort of fairly typical answer uh, or or an answer that um, used to be provided by people on the left of the political spectrum is that corporations and other private actors um, are just as likely to be able to limit um, an individual's freedom um, as is the state, um, right? Oftentimes we work under conditions uh, that we feel that like we have a fairly uh, little control over, so there's no real good sense uh, why, you know, um, why, why, why those kinds of um, um, actors uh, and, and their sort of control over our lives shouldn't be seen as having the possibility um, of limiting our freedom. Uh, and yet, that, that does seem to be um, a sort of blind spot um, in, in, in thinking about freedom um, as long as we you know, keep on thinking about freedom in those Cold War terms or 19th century terms.
0: You write that our current conception of freedom Must be understood as a deliberate and dramatic rupture With long-established ways of thinking about liberty For centuries, Western thinkers and political actors Identified freedom not with being left alone by the state But with exercising control over the way one is governed Do you think the uprisings from the left and the right Around the world are in any way a response to that feeling Of not controlling how we are governed And thus a lack of freedom?
2: Um, Well, perhaps you could give me a little bit more uh, details on what kind of uprisings you think of.
0: Well, when either if it is, if it are the protesters, the Black Lives Matter protesters who are uh, protesting against racialized police violence, or they are the white supremacist counter protesters who are fighting for whatever the security or safety of the United States from their perception. Do you think that these uprisings are a a reflection of people feeling that they have lost control over government? and therefore have lost their freedom
2: um, yeah it, it seems um, it seems as if you you could definitely make that point uh, that those uh, uprisings fit into a longer tradition uh, of people protesting uh, against not having sufficient control um, over their political and economic destinies and and hence um, and hence feeling unfree so I'm, I'm not trying to argue that this sort of older conception of freedom, that democratic conception of freedom, that has been completely lost. I think it still uh, inspires quite a few among us. But what I do find quite striking, um, if you look at current political debates, especially in the US, but also in Europe, is that the most ardent freedom fighters, people who are most insistent that you know what they love above everything else is freedom, uh, that those uh, are to be found on the right of the political spectrum. Did this... and, and and that they start from the, from a very different understanding of freedom, uh, an understanding of freedom that has nothing to do with having control uh, over your uh, over your life uh, in the sense of um, uh, fighting for greater democratic control over government.
0: Did this concept of freedom exist prior to neoliberalism, and what impact has neoliberalism had on our understanding of freedom as an individual right rather than the freedom to govern ourselves?
2: Yeah, so um, I've been describing this individualistic notion of freedom um, as a conservative notion of freedom, but you're absolutely right. Another uh, really valuable way uh, uh, of describing it is to say that it is this is you know, at the heart of neoliberalism. Um, neoliberalism is a, a doctrine um, very much predicated on that uh, individualistic uh, notion of freedom. But what's interesting is that um, a lot of this goes back not to. Um, you know the 1950s, 1960s when neoliberalism starts being invented. Uh, but at the already at the end of the 19th century, you see uh, proponents of laissez-faire economics. So sort of in in a way the um, um, the the progenitors of or the, the you know the uh, the precursors of, of modern day neoliberalism. You already see them talking about socialism as this huge threat to liberty um and as and, uh, and as the rise of the welfare states so at the end of the 19th century in many european countries sort of the first careful steps are being taken uh towards uh the uh, creation of modern welfare states and what you see is that th- those very you know careful first embryonic uh, uh welfare states um uh, that, that that they are um you know when those steps are being taken, you already see that um, laissez-faire thinkers, uh, proponents of laissez-faire, argue that this is a very dangerous uh, evolution, and this is this is something that um, will it will you know that this is something that will um, uh, that poses a, a great harm and a great danger to individual liberty. So you, you already see this argument uh, being used by uh, by the end of the nineteenth century uh, when. Um, uh, when states uh, are first introducing measures such as uh, you know sh- uh, shorter working uh, working days uh, or a, pro- a prohibition of ch- child labour, even those measures are decried as uh, uh, you know yeah, um, attempts to enslave um, um, uh, ordinary people.
0: So was democracy inevitably evolving into social democracy or a form of democratic socialism as equality became more and more popular? Is that what was taking place?
2: Uh, yeah, so um, the the late 19th century uh, is a period when, um, in particular, in Europe, uh, uh, two um, developments come together. Uh, one development is uh, the expansion of democracy. So in Europe, this happens um, a lot later than, uh, than it does in the U.S. Um, but that development, uh, democratization development, is accompanied by another development, and that is, um, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, the early creation uh, of those uh, still very embryonic uh, welfare states, uh, sort of first attempts to really do something uh, about the social problem. And you see when those two developments come together, um, that there's a, a huge backlash against that, and that backlash is articulated in terms of uh, this being, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a very, very dangerous uh, attack on individual liberty. Uh, to give you just one example, uh, there is a famous uh, British uh, British political thinker, Herbert Spencer, um, uh, who writes um, uh, several um, books uh, uh, warning that um, you know socialism is slavery. And and uh, so the interesting thing is that this. Um, attack uh, on this uh, on the you know creation of these embryonic welfare states is articulated not in terms of this being bad for the economy uh, but as something that is very dangerous for you know a, a key cherished political ideal liberty
0: it's to you what explains the lack of Awareness by those who claim to be representative of, say, the founding fathers of the United States when their concept of freedom is so antithetical to the framers of the Constitution's view of freedom? To you, what, what explains that lack of awareness of not understanding that their, their definition of freedom is something that is very different from the idea of freedom of the people who they claim to represent?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, so what you what you see today is that um, again, those people uh, most you know adamant that they're freedom fighters uh, and most eager to invoke the example uh, of the founders um, and and to you know insisting that you know they're freedom fighters just like uh, the founders uh, that that those. Individuals, in fact, use a conception of liberty that is very different from the conception of freedom um, that was uh, commonly, or that was at the heart of the not just the American Revolution, but the Atlantic Revolutions, more generally speaking. Um, Because those revolutions, uh, when uh, the Atlantic Revolutionaries were fighting for freedom, what they meant by that, as you also mentioned earlier, uh, was fairly straightforward. Uh, It was extending uh, democratic control over government. And that's not what... Today's conservatives are talking about one day talk about freedom, Um, but I think one of the reasons why this has sort of um, been covered over is that it it you know it pays. um, There's a certain attractiveness to being able to say that you're placing yourself um, in in that uh, tradition, uh, that long-standing tradition. uh, It it allows the today's uh, conservatives to portray themselves as the real patriots and as the real heirs of America's founding tradition, whereas in fact uh, they deviate in, in many important ways quite substantially from that uh, founding tradition.
0: You also point out that the Western political tradition has had far more impact than other comparable traditions when it comes to the ways in which people around the world think and talk about freedom. In the Arabic-speaking world, for instance, the concept of freedom, Haria, became increasingly politicized in the course of the 19th century as contact with the West and, in particular, with France increased. How do we understand the impact the West has had on the rest of the world when we consider its impact on the world's understanding of what freedom is 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 a different Western understanding of freedom. Somehow, a colonial or imperial project.
2: Uh, that's a great uh, question um, to which I don't really have a, a clear-cut answer. Um, so. I, my book is on the so-called Western tradition of freedom. Um, it focuses on, uh, on thinkers that we usually that are usually described as uh, as Western, in the sense of European or American. Uh, but I didn't want to su- sort of suggest um, that by doing so, I was implicitly saying that you know only the West has a tradition of thinking about freedom. Um, I, I definitely uh, don't want to suggest that. Uh, as a matter of fact, we know that there are many other cultural traditions that also have had lively debates about what freedom means um, and uh, uh, what uh, freedom means in, in sort of in terms of, of um, political institutions. Um, at the same time, I do think uh, that you can argue that um, the uh, so-called Western uh, tradition uh, has had a uh, quite Um, you know, a substantial impact on the way in which we think about freedom uh, or in the way which people think about freedom in the rest of the world. And I think that that is uh, related to the fact that um, Europe uh, and later on uh, the United States, thanks to the uh, economic sort of uh, um, its economic weight uh, uh, in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, was able to project its own um, uh, its own values and its own sort of way of thinking Uh, on the rest of the world. So I guess in that sense, you could say that uh, the fact that, you know, people care about what Western thinkers said, and they did care, right? John Stuart Mill was translated into many different languages, um, you know, Japanese, uh, many other Asian languages. So, um, you know, as as soon as in the 19th century, non-Western people become aware um, of the sort of military prowess of uh, European uh, nations, Um, They become interested in what Europeans had to say about freedom uh, and, um, you know, Europeans also actively try to export these ideas. So I I think, you know, you are right. And in that sense, uh, the fact that uh, that tradition has had so much of an impact um, um, is is definitely linked to, um, um, you know, to the wider colonial history.
0: And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to make sure we got back to it. You write the language of freedom they used was open-ended. They talked about freedom as depending on democracy, self-rule, and popular government, but not on, for instance, andricacy, that is, a social system ruled by or dominated by men. For this reason, freedom remained available for appropriation by groups that continued to be excluded from politics. Was freedom made vulnerable because freedom was not extended to everyone. Is freedom freedom when it is unequally applied?
2: Well, um, so in my book, I I try to do two uh, quite, uh, you know, slightly different things. The first thing is to sort of um, um, explore the origin of uh, this sort of modern idea that freedom means absence of state intervention. And I try to show Uh, that that was, in fact, a a conservative counter-revolutionary invention. But then another thing that I tried to do in the book is to, um, in a way, unearth or uh, rehabilitate, recover um, this older and more democratic way of thinking about freedom. Uh, The idea that freedom means uh, having democratic control over government. Uh, Now, what I show in the book is that this idea was quite old. Um, uh, You already... um, you know, the sort of first set of thinkers um, in the Western tradition who use freedom in this democratic sense of the word were Greek thinkers. But what you see at the same time is that um, when they talked about being free and how important it was in order to be free, to be self-governing, what you see is that um, in, you know, their language is very open-ended, but in, in actual reality, um, the people um, which were included in their self-governing ideal were, were, were quite limited in the Greek case, for instance, uh, women were excluded, slaves were excluded, and uh, in the Athenian case, uh, metics were also excluded from governing. So the, what you see is that um, even in places where there's a lot of talking about the importance of freedom um, and, and, um, and, and where freedom is seen as a, you know, a really a key political ideal, before the 18th century, even in um, in in contexts where you see this idea is being talked about constantly, you see that the actual reality of what's happening in you know in in political terms, um, you know, is in 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 from our perspective at least fairly limited. So the um, um, uh, to the extent that um, ordinary people were able to participate in government, um, you know, up you know up until our current day even you could argue um, this this ideal was wasn't very you know the actual you know reality on the ground wasn't very democratic um, but what I also try to show is that because the language they used was was so open-ended because they um, uh, because uh, Greek thinkers uh, and Roman thinkers as well as their their heirs uh, the Renaissance humanists, because they talked about uh, freedom as requiring um, self-government and because they linked that to other concepts, such as democracy, um, their language, uh, later groups uh, that they themselves tended to exclude from, um, from political uh, self-government, were able to sort of uh, tag t- onto that, uh, that ideal and use, use that, that, I- that ideal and that language for their own purposes. Um, I think that's uh, fairly clear in the case of, for instance, the feminist movement. Um, So feminists, um, late 19th century feminists, modeled themselves to a certain extent um, on the uh, late late 18th century Atlantic revolutionaries, and they also often invoked their example, even though those late 18th century revolutionaries themselves, of course, uh, excluded women from uh, political participation.
0: (laughs) you mentioned the counter revolutionary aspect of what has happened in the united states what happened in france you write that the shift to a new understanding of liberty was the outcome of a prolonged political struggle triggered by the atlantic revolutions of the late 19 or late 18th centuries These uh, revolutions played a crucial role in establishing our modern democratic political systems, but they also inspired a formidable reaction against democracy, notably the French Revolution's descent into political violence. The terror turned many intellectuals and civic actors on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean against the efforts to introduce bottom-up politics. The resulting counter-revolutionary movement propagated a new understanding of liberty, one that directly contested the democratic view by prioritizing the enjoyment of private Independence. How do we understand our so-called democracy and our freedom differently when we see it not as revolutionary but as counter-revolutionary? What should that reveal to us about our democracy?
2: Um, well, what I so um, what I what I try to show in the book um, is that perhaps not our current democracy, but our current way of thinking about liberty, um, that that is, in in fact, um, as you say, a counter-revolutionary invention. And I think it's important to uh, pay attention to that history. And the reason why I think that is because people um, tend to think of freedom as something positive, as something admirable, as something we all should want. But what I try to show in my book is that, you know, there's a long history of political thinkers and other individuals claiming uh, that they're fighting for freedom and in fact they're using that as a weapon to fight for elite interests Um, and I think it's important that we are aware of that history because that um, can help us to understand that today um, those individuals uh, who are you know screaming most loudly that what they want is freedom are in fact also evoking that um, that concept, that ideal uh, um, uh, you know, to to argue for the interests of a very small uh, elite.
0: You write that concerns about the illiberal nature of democracy were sparked by fears about its redistributive uh, facts. A uh, desire for economic equality came to be seen not as an important mainstay for liberty, but as its worst enemy. The push for equality, it was argued. Harmed freedom directly by infringing on individual property rights and indirectly by introducing or sorry by inducing people to hand over the power to a paternalistic state as a C or a Caesarist dictator is imposing equality necessarily dictatorial and if not why not.
2: Well uh, that you know it definitely wasn't uh, according to many of those uh, Atlantic revolutionaries, including uh, many American revolutionaries. So in their view, um, economic equality was in fact a necessary precondition for you know, for freedom in the sense of democratic self-government. Uh, and that was an idea that they borrowed from a really interesting 17th century thinker whose name is James Harrington. Uh, and what Harrington was one of the very first thinkers to argue, uh, A, that democracy was a good thing and that you needed it um, if you uh, wanted to be free, but also B, uh, that democratic self-government and hence freedom couldn't survive in a situation uh, of extreme economic inequality. And that's why he proposed a set of policies uh, that were designed to... um, um, to make sure that nobody would be able to amass um, a, huge, uh, a huge amount of economic wealth. Um, and that idea was uh, proved to be quite influential. It was also picked up by uh, several of the uh, American and French revolutionaries uh, who, like Harrington, introduced laws that were supposed to make sure um, that property, and in particular inherited property, was divided equally among children uh, and their sort of uh, idea was that in the long run, this would make sure um, that, um, um, uh, that that no, no single family would be able to amass the kinds of fortunes that would give them um, enormous, uh, that, would give, that would give them excessive control, uh, political control, um, and hence turn uh, the uh, democratic republics, those revolutionaries were trying to create into oligarchies.
0: You write that a historical understanding of the development of the Western freedom tradition is therefore immediately relevant to contemporary debates about freedom, more broadly speaking. To what extent do you think the political lines right now are being drawn as class interests versus those who want democracy? Is that what we might be seeing at protests that we're seeing when it comes to racialized police violence, that these are class interests versus democracy?
2: Um, I'm I'm wondering if you could clarify it a little bit. So, um, class interests of whom? Uh, uh, the class democracy? interests.
0: Uh, you point out that the ideas that uh, people who who embrace the idea of individualized freedom, that they are actually, you know. Uh, There are class interests that are benefiting from that concept of individualized freedom So is the political debate, if you will, today If you look at protests when it comes to Black Lives Matter And the counter-protesters who are also there Is that debate, does that boil down to class interests Those class interests of uh, individual uh, freedom Versus those who would like to have expanded democracy
2: Yes, I, I think that's uh, that's definitely uh, one important uh, lens through which we could look at those uh, debates and those uh, those political um, those political debates. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. And uh, just a couple more questions for you. You write the idea invented by thinkers such as William Graham Sumner. Uh, Sumner that the United States is a and Not a democracy and that in other words There is a crucial difference between the two Remains popular among the right It is a concept often inv- invoked to legitimate Institutional constraints On the popular will such as in Judicial review where which are identified As part of the United States Republican Read undemocratic legacy As in the 19th century such constraints are typically Defended as instrumental to preserving Liberty against majoritarian Tyranny how would Or do we lose our freedom when we accept the belief that we are a republic and not a democracy, despite the fact that a republic is a democracy? Because this is an argument we hear all the time on Fox News Channel here in the United States, that we do not live in a republic but a democracy. How does the understanding of living in a, a republic undermine our democracy?
2: Uh, well, in a fairly straightforward manner. So that uh, meme, uh, let's call it a meme, Uh, Is typically used to to explain why it's okay that uh, Donald Trump is currently the president of the U.S., even though uh, he had far fewer votes, even though he lost the popular vote. Um, And uh, it's you know this is what I what I one of the things that I try to show in the book is that this meme even though it's often attributed, again, to the founders, to uh, somebody like James Madison, for instance, uh, that a a far more likely source for this this idea uh, is somebody like William Graham Sumner, um, who was a late 19th century uh, political scientist. Uh, He was a professor at Yale, and he was a thoroughgoing anti-Democrat. He did not like uh, democracy. Um, And, um, uh, you know, he gave expression to his anti-Democratic views by... Uh, um, 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 by celebrating uh, those aspects of the American constitutional system uh, that were least uh, democratic.
0: One last question for you. We've been speaking with political historian Annalene Dijin. She is author of Freedom and Unruly History. You can find out more about Annalene at com. You can follow her on Twitter at DE underscore and Annalene is the author of French Political Thought, from Montesquieu to de Tocqueville. Her research has been supported by the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies, and the Independent Social Research Foundation. And you should definitely check out this book. It is so timely right now with what the political debate is like here in the United States. Again, the title of the book is Freedom and Unruly History. One last question for you, Annalena, as we do with all of our guests Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. What role did our understanding of individual freedom, as opposed to the freedom to govern ourselves, what do you think? What role do you think that played in the world's response to the pandemic? Did our understanding of freedom as not having government affect us, rather than the, gov- the freedom to govern ourselves? Did that have any impact on the response to the global pandemic?
2: It sure did, uh, and it seems like its uh, impact has been mostly negative. Um, you know I think it's fairly obvious that uh, you know that that. that fixation on being free in the sense of being left alone uh, by the state has severely uh, undermined the ability um, um, of of governments, several governments, but also the US government to deal effectively with the pandemic.
0: So what do you think it will take for us to redefine freedom? What do you think it'll take?
2: Well, I hope everybody will read my book, <laughs> become, become aware that there's this other way of thinking about freedom, this older and more democratic way of thinking about freedom. And that is a way of thinking. I mean, that's a, a valuable conception of freedom, a valuable way of thinking. Um, of what it means to be free. uh, And that's the way of uh, thinking that we should uh, return to.
0: Again, political historian Annalene DeGin, author of Freedom and Unruly History, a really fascinating book, and everybody should go out and get it. Thank you so much for being on our show. I've really enjoyed our conversation this morning.
2: Thank you so much. It was great to be here.
0: Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is Hell. Alex, can you please remind us what this week's question from Hell is and and tell us how our listening audience is answering so far?
1: All right. This week's question from Hell is, uh, what are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? What are you telling yourself as you vote for Joe Biden? This won't last long. Uh, Will GR says, don't blame me. I voted for Kodos. (laughs) Rob H. says that I'm just biding my time until the complete collapse. Adam A says, Well, what every Chicagoan invariably says, well, what can you do? <laughs> Egon S says, Double think means the power of holding two contradictory beliefs in one's mind simultaneously and accepting both of them. Dan O says, This canceled out the other vote I cast for Donald Trump. Hooray for voting twice. Joe G says, Do it for Hunter.
0: <laughs> oh, God. Uh,
1: Kent S says, Trump bad. Craig H. says nothing because it's not going to happen give him a fave for that one and Aaron D. says mail-in ballots means no one can see you cry
0: (laughs) do you think we'll get any more Simpsons references or puns as many of our answers to the question from hell are oh is that a Simpsons reference? I never watched that show that's what you keep trying to convince people is the truth Alex I don't know if it's working the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins our new Gray on Black This Is Hell Truckers Cap. You can check out the new on Black This Is Hell Truckers Cap at thisishell.com. When you click on support, Alex will have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail again on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at this is and you can tweet it to us at this is hell radio. But you must have your answers Into us by the end of Thursday's show, when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do most weeks after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. September 11th, 1973. 47 years ago this Friday, Salvador Allende, the democratically elected Marxist president of Chile, was overthrown by military forces allied with the right-wing General Augusto Pinochet in a coup d'etat, supported by the CIA and the Nixon administration, and overseen in large part by U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. And every Secretary of State ever since Kissinger has had a connection to Kissinger, who was involved in several coups When Kissinger finally dies And there is definitely no Guarantee he will, the media Will hail him as a hero and politicians From both sides of the aisle will come together In a bipartisan way to mourn The loss of their tyrant Who wouldn't just interfere in elections Via social media like Russian, Russia Does, that's, that's Penny Annie He'd overthrow those elections with Military coup d'etats that overturned The democratic will of the people entirely Just hours before the presidential palace was overtaken by Pinochet's troops, Allende gave his last radio speech to the Chilean people, affirming his faith in the country's future and his own refusal to surrender or compromise with the coup plotters. He had already turned down an offer of safe passage out of the country shortly after finishing the speech. Allende, in the presence of witnesses, shot himself in the head with an AK-47. That seems very difficult to do. That had been a gift from Cuban President Fidel Castro. Yikes. General Pinochet quickly seized power as head of a military junta. This inaugurated a U.S.-backed right-wing dictatorship that would last more than 16 years institute neoliberal free market policies and cause the executions or forced disappearances of more than 3,000 people, as well as the imprisonment and horrific torture and rape of up to 30,000 political dissidents. Later, neoliberal economists will declare the Chilean miracle of success and never again mention that the only way they could get that miracle to happen was with a military coup d'etat to overthrow the democratically elected leadership. That miracle, of course, was very short-lived, only benefited the very wealthy, destroyed the social safety net, as well as devastated the public health and education systems in Chile. Henry Kissinger, American Hero. In Rotten History, September 13, 1848, 172 years ago this coming Sunday, near Cavendish, Vermont, a railroad construction crew led by a highly regarded 25-year-old foreman named Phineas Gage, and if your first name is Phineas, bad things will happen to you, was preparing an explosive charge to cut a path through a massive rock outcropping when the charge ignited accidentally. The blast propelled a a three-and-a-half-foot, 13-pound iron tamping rod directly through the left side of Gage's head. Incredibly, Phineas did not die or even lose consciousness. He managed to get himself to a doctor in less than an hour, which had to be the longest less than an hour in human history. With a gaping hole in his head, he had lost a large amount of blood. Bone and brain tissue And in the weeks that followed He passed in and out of consciousness But gradually improved Because really, the only thing that could get worse Is if he died Gage's head wound eventually healed to the point That he looked almost normal Aside from the loss of one eye And was able to begin doing chores On his family farm And this history is so rotten I haven't yet had many snarky comments to add Gage became a famous medical curiosity, studied by many doctors. Boy, I know what that's like. But his personality was so drastically changed that people who knew him said he was no longer the same person. You lose a little brain and drag yourself to the hospital with a 13-pound iron bar sticking out of your head. Yeah, your personality is definitely going to change. Formerly a quiet and polite sort, he was now given to episodes of sudden anger and raging profanity, punctuated by occasional bouts of delirium. Sounds about right, again, for a guy who survived a 13-pound iron bar being stuck in his head. He kept the iron rod that had pierced his head, calling it his constant companion and treating it as a prized possession. Hey, at least he didn't give it a name, because that that's just creepy. Yet his temperament gradually settled down, and he finally managed to hold down a series of strenuous jobs, including a stint as stagecoach driver in Chile, long before Pinochet overthrew Allende. Until Gage began to suffer violent seizures and convulsions and died... Finally, in San Francisco at the age of 36. Today, Gage's skull and his constant companion, Iron Rod, are on display in a museum at the Harvard University Medical School because the Harvard University Medical School is gruesome. That's Rotten History, and this is hell. Alex, what's happening on the rest of this week's shows? Uh, tomorrow, that's uh,
1: Wednesday, Caroline Turwent will be on, anthropologist Caroline Turwent, to talk about her book When Protest Becomes Crime, Politics and Law in Liberal Democracies. And then Jeffy on Thursday. Yeah, we're, we're still, still working on Thursday. I send you an email with a bunch of stuff, too. Yeah,
0: and uh, listeners, if you have any ideas for breaking stories, stuff that may have just come out today or even tomorrow, uh, send us any of your leads on stuff to t- touch on on Thursday. We'll be touching on stuff. that's uh, I mean, all of this is timely, but you know, directly timely. Uh, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Live streaming host Whatever Chuck Mertz Producing this week's show Is Alex Jerry as always Thanks to Annalene DeGin, Our guest today Also to Alex Jerry for producing And thanks Ronaldo for Rotten History Special thanks to Theron Humiston And Richard Norwood again For all of their behind the scenes work Here on This Is Hell We told you so This is Hell